Hi everyone, and welcome back to our final day of our 10 days, 10 Mahler symphonies project here at Attention to Detail. Today we're gonna to break down only the first movement of the 10th symphony. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about why we're only doing the first movement, but first I have to get introduce our our final guest on this Mahler project. We're, we're really stumbling to the finish here. I completely ran out of ideas, so I went to my absolute last option fallback in my own brother, Josh Joyce. How, how are you doing? Doing well. It's an honor to be your last option on the podcast. <laughs> Where are you right now? How's the coronavirus treating you? Um, currently quarantined in Ann Arbor, Michigan, a few blocks away from where you're at. Um, just off the campus of the University of Michigan, which was recently canceled, canceled classes, so I'm staying in my apartment down there, and then hopefully I'll be coming home in a few days or so once that is fully quarantined for a full 10 days. Nice. Um, what is it like being a, a college student now taking all of your classes remotely? It's, it's a little weird. Um, a lot of the Zoom, I don't know if you've seen Zoom stock is off the charts, but we're using, uh, we're using a lot of the Zoom online, so you're kind of talking to everybody through your computer, which is a little bit weird, but it's not terrible. It's not, it's a little bit better than I expected, so. Okay, well, we know when you come home, you've, you, you're a member of the crew team at University of Michigan, but I've been hitting the gym pretty hard in my extra time here, so I'm going to try to out-pull you on the erg when you get back. Yeah, I mean, we'll see, we'll see what happens. I've, I've been known to beat you at these things in the past, but we'll see. We'll yeah. see if you can pull one out. We will have to see. I, I think it's, it's, it's unlikely, but I'm going to give it a shot nonetheless. So anyways, today we're talking about uh, Mahler's 10th Symphony. And Josh, you're, you're not a musician, but as a function of growing up in a, uh, in a house with, with probably with me, you've, you've been exposed to some Mahler. Do you have a favorite Mahler symphony? You know, I do, as a matter of fact. I, I would say you're accurate. I'm not a huge classical music buff, but I know a little bit more than I'd say most of the people in my age group. But my favorite Mahler symphony is number two. Nice. Um, the ending is my favorite ending of any piece I have ever heard, pretty much. Yeah. So I am a huge fan of the resurrection. Good choice, good choice. Well, today, as you know, we're, we're looking at the 10th. I'll just give a little overview of, of this symphony. The reason why we're only reviewing the first movement is because this symphony was left unfinished by Mahler. We mentioned on our last podcast, the Ninth, about how he was terrified of this curse of the Ninth Symphony, where it seemed like so many great composers couldn't get past their Ninth. And indeed, it's, it's so weird, eerie, chilling that Mahler started his 10th symphony but actually couldn't finish it before he, he died. But what he left us was actually um, a movement fully sketched out and orchestrated, the first movement, and then substantial sketches for many of the other movements. And there have been many completions of this symphony done by various people. The most famous is by Derek Cook, who prepared a full concert version of all five movements of this symphony. 
and it's actually a really interesting symphony as a whole, but we're just going to deal with the pure Mahler today and, and cover what's sometimes performed by itself, which is the first movement, the Adagio. This piece was written in, in 1910, right towards the end of Mahler's life. He was splitting time between New York and Europe, and this is where his relationship with his wife, Alma, was really coming to a head. She had had an affair with, with the painter Walter Gropius, um, and Mahler knew about this, and he knew that Alma was potentially losing interest, and Alma was, like, such an important figure in his life, so he was he was obviously devastated by this, and so he was his personal life was really in disarray, as, as was his health, despite being kind of at the peak of his compositional powers and so that's the the setting for this this 10th symphony which is in many ways similar to the ninth a lot sparser in orchestration uh a lot more atonal than a lot of his other pieces and actually this 10th symphony even the sketches of further movements show us a little glimpse into maybe what we would have gotten from Mahler had we had he lived longer and continued composing, which is a really hyper-modern, true 20th century composer a la Schoenberg, Webern. It was definitely trending in that direction in these last few pieces. But let's look at a little bit of the uh, the music of this, this first movement, the Adagio. And Josh, I wanted to ask you, you listened to this in preparation. What were your first or initial takeaways of hearing this piece versus some of the Mahler that you might know better or have heard before. Yeah, absolutely. Listening to this one, for me, it was a lot more quiet and pensive than his other symphonies. For like, I know, for example, in 2 and 5, there's a lot of big brass and a lot of big finishes, and this one went a lot in and out, a lot of more quiet passages. Um, and there was no big finish at the end of this. This movement, which struck me as a little odd for... Mahler, so it's clear that we can see he's kind of being a little more introspective here, and it was obviously a little more atonal, you could hear a lot of notes that didn't quite sit right, so clearly he's going through a lot of pain, and it's near his, near the end of his life, so it's good to have the background on it as well. Yeah, I, it's an excellent point, and as we saw in the Ninth Symphony as well yesterday, three out of the four movements of that Ninth Symphony ended very quietly, kind of faded out. And so he was trending very much, as you say, in, in, in a introspective uh, and maybe more, more pained direction than his early symphonies. So the main ideas, there are three main thematic ideas to this first movement, the Adagio. And let's listen to those thematic ideas. They're all very different. It starts kind of similar passage to uh, many passages in the ninth with this very barren, sparse opening where we just hear the violins playing by themselves. So let's hear the opening of this movement.
So, Jake, I've been hearing that piece. It seems a lot more kind of atonal than Mahler's characteristic stuff. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. The, the key of this opening is very hard to determine because, as you say, it feels like we're just hearing a string of, of disassociated notes. continues yeah in this very almost searching type of way and like you say it's it's a very atonal opening and it's also a weird opening to start only with the violin section how many symphonies have we heard that that open like that i i i don't know that i can think of any off the top of my head so anyways like the ninth symphony which we talked about yesterday despite being kind of sparse in instrumentation this piece is all about maximum maximum contrast and so let me play for you the second theme of this this first movement which is totally different you'll definitely hear a key for this theme much more tonal much more passionate here's the the second thematic idea section now playing what we call molto espressivo very expressively and it's a, a really singing theme uh, still elements of atonality or dissonance which it's it's not the same type of music as say the the last movement of the third symphony but really lyrical really passionate sounds in some ways very similar to a lot of the music of the ninth symphony and we'll see a lot of connections between the ninth and the tenth the kind of two symphonies that people see as his late style, if you want to call it that. So then we hear our third and our last kind of major thematic idea from this movement. Let's hear that as well. And this one is related to the idea, that barren idea of the opening, but it's been reappropriated into a totally new context here. So here's the, the third thematic idea. about that music in relation to what we've heard so far? 
it's a little bit more developed. There's a few more instruments coming into play, but it seems a little chaotic, and you, know, you can hear the volume going up and down, and there's also melodies going up and down the scale, so it just seems like he's trying to find something, but he can't. It's a little, little chaotic and all over the place. Yeah, it, it definitely introduces this element of, like you'd say, almost chaos to the the melody. Interesting because it's really leaping high and low. Interestingly, these melodies, I just want to point out, the first melody that we heard, if I, if I put it in a different key, if we want to call it that, it goes like this. But here, the melody we have here goes. And then it leaps as well. So clearly the two themes are linked to each other. But as you mentioned, he's developed this idea. He's made it into a more chaotic, a more scherzo-like idea. And we'll hear this contrast like we had in... Uh, the first movement and the last movement of the ninth, this contrast between really, really lyrical passages and more scherzo-like uh, developed passages. So this movement uh, unfolds in what we might call a rotational form, where we just get the rotations of these three themes over and over again. So we go back and uh, we hear a rotation again. We hear the first theme, the lonely theme just played by the, by the violins again. We hear our second passionate theme again. I want to play a little bit of the, the second time we hear the second theme because it's some of the most passionate music Mahler writes in this, mu uh, in this movement. And then you'll hear it kind of dissolve into this, this third theme again. And like so many uh, portions of the music that he writes in this late style, the passion seems to kind of fragment and dissolve instead of resulting in some sort of climax or triumph. So here's, here's the second time we hear that lyrical material and he's really heightened the expression even more here. scherzo-like theme again. Then we, we start to depart a tiny bit from the... Uh, well, we start... We, we rotate again. We get our first theme again. And then he starts almost developing it, it, as, as if we were in a development section, as we've seen in these late pieces, combining multiple ideas into one. And naturally, the first and third of these ideas are related. And so he starts combining and developing those ideas instead of just giving us the first theme at the beginning of this this third rotation of material. So let's hear a little bit just of how he combines those ideas. <laughs> 
there was kind of a bit of a call and response between the uh, solo violin and the flute, and maybe even after that, the woodwinds seemed to be kind of mirroring each other with those trills that were going one after the other. Was that was that hearing that correctly? For sure. And what you what you picked up on because those those instruments seem to stick out. We're hearing a lot of the third thematic idea, but actually that solo violin that you mentioned is playing the violin line from the beginning, the... So we're hearing the the violin play that while we're getting all this material, and then, like you said, the kind of third thematic material gets passed between all the woodwind sections as he's developing these ideas. So excellent, excellent catch. Um, nice work. And then, <laughs> so, and then we, we start breaking off a little bit from this rotational form idea. We go back to the second theme instead of, um, well, we hear the second theme, we hear the third theme to complete the rotation. But once we've completed that rotation, our third rotation, so we've really hear, heard all of these things three times. And then we, we really veer off course. We get the second theme again, and quintessential Mahler... We're hearing this second theme, and in the middle of it, suddenly quick cut. We talked about on our previous breakdown how it's almost cinematic, these quick cuts. And we go immediately back to the barren loneliness of the first theme. So I'll play you that spot where we get totally interrupted. The second theme seems out of place, and then we cut right back to the first theme. excellent kind of character changer as we were saying he does quick cuts and here it's like in the ninth symphony like in so many of his other symphonies it's about the maximal level of contrast and he's doing that now he's not even ending his themes now he's decided to cut in the middle of a theme and just completely change the character when you when you least expect it so then we come to the crux of this movement, the moment where we, we've talked about them so many times on this podcast, these breakthrough moments where he shatters the form and he does something totally unexpected. And we've only had these three ideas. We've been rotating through them, and it's been pretty standard. And then suddenly we get this chorale breakthrough out of nowhere. And so I want to play for you the beginning of that chorale breakthrough, and you, you immediately recognize that this is music from another world. This is music outside of this adagio movement. So here's where we first hear that that chorale breakthrough moment.
of atonal passages in there. It seemed a lot more tonal than the rest of the piece on that. Is that is that correct? Yeah, in fact, this is one of the our second theme we have been in uh, a key, Josh, you played piano. Tricky key to play a scale in of F sharp major. Tough one. <laughs> sharps. Tell me how many sharps are in F sharp major. Quick pop quiz. There are five. There are five. Uh, try that again. There are four. Uh, keep the wrong way. Oh, what? You got this. Okay, yes, six. Six, excellent. Six sharps, F sharp major. I oh. forgot that there were, there were only, there were only five black keys, but the, the C is a D sharp, correct? There you go. Yeah, so six yeah. sharps, F sharp major. But in fact, here um, we are in what we might want to call A flat minor. I won't make you tell me how many flats that is, but uh, we're in A flat minor, and actually, as you mentioned, Great point. Lots of uh, tonality here, and it's it's weird. It's minor, but it's it's tonal, and we get this chorale. That's part of the reason why it feels so uh, otherworldly. But then, the tonality is not going to last because we actually build to one of the most famous moments in all of Mahler, especially in late Mahler. Um, and I want to play for you that moment, and then we will we will talk about it. on that chord because Mahler actually used nine notes of the scale in that chord. Usually we hear three notes or four notes. You know, this is a three-note chord. This is a four-note chord. When we start adding more and more notes, there's more possibilities for dissonance and more possibilities for that kind of crunchy sound. And Mahler, in fact... Um, used nine notes in that chord. I'm going to try to play for you as many of them as my hands can reach, but here's something like what we hear in there. It goes... So you hear it's massively, massively dissonant. And, and th there was an interesting thing going on in the early 20th century with, with composers. They were trying to stretch the limits to the max of what traditional harmony could sustain, could bear. And there was this push to create chords that used as many of the 12 tones as possible. 
um, in a way that actually kind of worked. And you say, like, oh, why don't you just throw all 12 in there? Um, a 12-note chord would just sound like complete chaos. And composers were trying to write chords that both were super, super painful dissonant, but also had some sort of actual theoretical function or purpose. So Mahler, people often look at this passage as the, the most notes that someone can pack into a chord. Later, the composer Scriabin was also obsessed with this. He wrote a 10-note chord. I think he even wrote an 11-note chord. Um, it's, but, but there was this fascination with stretching the limits of tonality to, the, uh, to their ultimate extremes. And so we get this very famous nine-note chord here at the moment of, of greatest, greatest anguish. And then, as you were saying, Josh, you, you heard that it kind of resolves after that. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it comes back to a more major and happy happy melody of these tunes. After it, it's clearly resolved, but you did a pretty good job of getting you getting you through on the edge of your seat for that nine note chord. Yeah, and I think, but that's the point: is that he wrote a nine note chord, and it's still able to resolve to some. So it wasn't just complete dissonance for dissonance's sake. We actually heard that resolve to something something interesting, but a, a massively important moment in in music theory, if nothing else, but also a super, super painful emotional moment in the piece. So then, as so many of his, his movements from the ninth and kind of these late period pieces end, we get this kind of fragmenting of ideas from the, from our three themes that we had heard to begin with, and the movement kind of sputters out to a finish. And so I'll play for you a decently extended clip of the ending of this movement, because you'll hear, as Josh has alluded to already, these kind of leaps of dynamics where suddenly we'll hear something loudly and then it'll come back to being very soft. But it's like trying to have one last gasp and it eventually fades to nothing, to some sort of resolution. So here's the ending passage of this 10th this Symphony Adagio.
So, Josh, what do you make of that uh, very ending of that piece? It feels... What do you think? This has been a kind of painful movement. Why, like, do you have any thoughts about why we heard that big, massive, dissonant chord, all that pain, and then why we ended in this, this particular way? Any ideas? Well, I can say certainly that it's not an ending that I would associate with Mahler if I had never heard this piece. But um, it's, a, it's, it's kind of interesting because to me it seems a lot like a major chord and it seems like a typical ending, but I can really distinctly hear a flute hitting a very, very high note. And even there, it kind of has a little bit of difference. So for me, the ending still kind of resolves to a major note but there's still that element of dissonance and dissonance and discomfort at the end so for me it seems like he's kind of playing a little bit with the typical resolution in any symphony to a major chord that you know gets everybody happy and ready to clap but then there's that little flute that brings back the tension and the dissonance of the rest of the piece you know i gotta say when someone makes a good point, even if they're my brother, uh, I got to commend them for it that we didn't even set that up. I think that's an excellent, uh, excellent point that we don't actually end with a, a true dissonance. We hear an F sharp major chord. But as you mentioned, it almost feels like a dissonance because the flute is playing such a high pitched, almost screechy like note, this kind of whistling. You know, you could write an entire. Uh, music theory PhD dissertation on uh, non-tonal disson- acoustic dissonances like passages where Mahler stretches the extremes and you have the basses playing with the piccolo. I think that's... We didn't even set that one up. That was I'm, I'm pretty impressed with, with that point. Yeah, I, uh, I dabble in music. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard. But... <laughs> well, listen... Listen, way to go. Um, I'm impressed. So that brings us to the end of the movement. And like I said, we're not going to review the Cook concert version of this piece, but it's a really interesting piece, and I encourage our listeners to go go check it out. Despite it not being 100% true Mahler, a lot of it comes directly from his sketches, and Cook actually did a fantastic job of realizing, I think, uh, Mahler's vision for this piece so with that, we're going to, to wrap up this episode and wrap up this uh, entire project of 10 Days, 10 Mahler Symphonies. I want to thank our listeners for joining us on this, uh, on this endeavor. I, you've been a fantastic crowd. We've been getting tons and tons of downloads, which we're obviously pleased about. But also, uh, we just thank you so much for listening. We want to hear what you think. Please, please write us at attentiontodetailpod.com. Always remember to subscribe rate and review if you'd if you've enjoyed it and i'm sure that over the course of this uh, coronavirus quarantine we'll be coming back to you with tons of other content so any final thoughts josh on uh on Mahler or anything else that we've got going on here i mean yeah it's it's a it's an honor to be the last podcast of the Mahler 10 days of 10 days of Mahler quarantine so yeah happy to uh, happy to be a part of it and when the uh subscriber starts Growing logistically like this disease, that'll be that'll be my my success. So bring it to me. You think that if we uh, blow up on our listeners, that's that's attributable to you? Yeah, I would say I would say you're not going to be flattening the curve.
But yeah, I mean, as a guest on this last podcast, that's all I'm saying. Interesting. We'll we'll put that into action because listen, we're throwing this up right now, and so we'll see if if that prediction comes true. With that, thank you, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, I will see you at home soon, buddy. All right, see you. Thank you, Jacob. Yep. Thanks to everybody, and we will be we will be back soon.